Today we're going to be in Ephesians 1, continuing on in Ephesians 1. So turn, turn there with me. Ephesians 1, and we're going to finish out our next major sentence in this book, and indeed the first chapter. Ephesians 1, our focus will be on verses 21 through 23 today. But before we get there, I want us to look at and consider one other passage, and this from Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And the scripture reads, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we have in this passage that reference to a son of man. And this is a favorite name of Jesus. When Jesus talks about himself, he talks about himself most often, or at least uh, one of the most often forms is he calls himself the son of man. And we may consider that to be, well, he's talking about his humanity there. But in reality, it's pulling back from this language from Daniel chapter 7. That when he says he is the son of man, he is saying he is the one who is presented to the ancient of days and to him is given what Daniel says, a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So Jesus uses this name to claim for himself something that if it were not true, He's a liar first, and we ought ignore him entirely. But Jesus is the Son of Man. And today as we come to our passage in Ephesians, we, we have to deal with this question of what does this mean for us? If Jesus is the Son of Man, if Jesus is the one to whom rule and authority by God the Father is given, what does this mean for us? What does it mean that Christ Jesus is and will rule and reign over all for all eternity? Well, Paul continues his prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, he wants them to understand that Christ Jesus is Lord over all peoples, places, and things, especially his church. Christ Jesus is Lord over all peoples, places, and things, especially his church. So as been our practice, we're going to read the whole sentence, as it were, uh, in the Greek, right? 17 through 23 is one sentence. Uh, In English, we break it up because that's how our grammar works, and it's easier for us to understand. But I want us to read 17 to 23, and then we'll focus in on 21 through 23 today. So... Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Paul opens the letter of Ephesians, if you remember, with a praise to God. 
He calls God blessed and right. And he proves that blessedness, that praiseworthiness uh, through the wonders and the workings of God, uh, especially on behalf of his elect people, the church, right? Whom he knew before the foundation of the world. He then proceeds with this period of thanksgiving and prayer to God and his prayers for the Ephesians to God are, are circled around, are focused in on them knowing God, right? He wants them to know God. He wants them to know, and there's right, a number of things here, right? He wants them to know uh, what is the hope to which he has called you, verse 18. What are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints, verse 18. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, verse 19. And then he goes on to explain, right, what, what is that immeasurable power look like? What does it look like? Well, it looks like the Christ Jesus raising from the dead, Christ Jesus being seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so we pick up in our passage today the further explanation of that. What does it mean that Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places? This is where we pick it up. The power of God is displayed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? That's, that's certain. We know that to be the case. That's remarkable. Uh, we could even look to those, those instances in the Gospels where we see this, right? What happens? Earthquake, uh, glorious light, a giant stone moved from a, out of the face of the tomb. Right? Power is working when Christ is raised from the dead. But Christ is, is also shown to be uh, God's power working in him when he ascends into heaven. Uh, when at his ascension, power is working. And when he ascends into heaven, he's going to come back again. Right? When Christ was raised from the dead, he didn't just walk around for a few more days and then die again. Right? But rather he was taken up into heaven where he still lives and where he is at the right hand of God. And again, remember that this being at the right hand of God, this is a place of power and authority. The Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So in our passage today, what we find is Paul's encouragement to the Ephesians and consequently to us about what exactly this means. What does it entail that Christ is in a place of power and authority. And so let's see first in verse 21. Uh, verse 21, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. All right, what does it say here? That Jesus is at the right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is, and this word far above is a word typically used for position in the sense of physical position. If I was on the balcony right now, I would be far above you. But here we now understand this to mean this is a metaphoric use of this word, right? Christ Jesus is superior, we might say, to all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Christ is above these things. And now we have to deal with a number of questions here in this verse. And so the first one we'll, we'll get into it is, are these spiritual powers, earthly powers, or some combination thereof, right? So when Paul writes that he is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, is he talking about some kind of heavenly hierarchy? Or is he talking about earthly kingdoms? What are these principalities and authorities? Right? We don't understand and we don't really know what is happening in the supernatural realm. Right? We are natural. And we don't often see what is happening in the supernatural realm. We don't know what is. The only glimpse that we have into it is the scriptures. So the only thing we know about what is happening in the supernatural realm today is from what we can understand in the scriptures. So are there hierarchies in the heavenly realms? Or should we just consider this to mean different kinds of, of earthly government, right? A governor has a different authority than a president, 
than an emperor, than a senator? And is this, just, you know, is this just, is Paul giving us a horizontal view of these things or a vertical view? Well, what we do know in this day, in the context in which this is written, Paul writing to the Ephesians, we do know that in these days, the people worshipped a multitude of gods, right? There were many different gods, and these different gods had different levels of authority, right? Some of them were, were the king, the top, right? We can think of someone like Zeus, right? He's, the, he's a, a top god, and all the others are lesser gods. Uh, they, we know that the people in this day practiced forms of magic, and when I say that, I don't mean that they had a deck of cards and they could guess which one you picked. Or they didn't pull bunny rabbits out of hats. Right? They, they tried to control situations and people through the use of incantations, through the use of uh, different objects that they hoped would have some kind of effect in the world. Uh, we see this. We know this to be the case. Uh, in our own day, we might think of in this vein, so what's something today that we might think of that we, we could relate this to And those who practice Wicca, right? Those who are witches or white witches or, or dark witches, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to control situations or people through, through the use of certain magical incantations or spells, which often involves some kind of gathering of materials to accomplish that end, right? That's what they're trying to do. There's this real belief today, and by the way, uh, in younger years, in my younger years, it was far less removed from our cultural climate, but today it's everywhere. Go, for instance, to a major bookstore, and they will have shelves full of crystals in different magics that people use to try and control situations and people so understand that this is not some kind of like well that's like that's weird they do that over you know in some other country they don't do that here uh, no here increasingly so in in major bookstores you will find this stuff so it's not like outside the realm it may be foreign to us, but it is not foreign to our culture. Uh, but all this to say that there are those who practice magic. In Paul's day, there were those who practiced magic. They had magic spell books. They had magic totems, items that, that they held on to to keep them from harm. In Judaism, so when we talk about the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people, the thought may have been so this may have been something from the Jewish culture. The thought may have been that different nations are ruled by different angelic beings. And when I say angelic there, realize that demons are angels. Uh, so when we talk about the Jewish belief here, we're talking about that other nations are ruled by demonic forces. And we can see this in the Old Testament, especially when we see that Israel is ruled by Yahweh, right? Israel's God, and other nations have other gods uh, who rule them and who are their patron gods. And those gods aren't uh, immaterial, as it were, in the sense that they, they're not real. Uh, they were demonic. Right? So there could have been this belief that these other gods are actually demons ruling over these other nations. Uh, our culture today, again, thinking about our culture today, uh, we tend to, although, again, I think the increasing amount of magic you see in bookstores is a sign that maybe we're, we're tipping the other direction, but our culture today tends to naturalism, which is to say this belief that what, what is real is only what we can see and measure. So if we can measure it, it's real. If we can't measure it, it's not real, it's fake, it's illusionary. Uh, it doesn't have an impact in the world. So we may hear these ideas of cosmic forces ruling nations and think it a strange notion. If someone suggested to us that the nation of England is being controlled by some demonic overlord, we would laugh, right? That's a funny thing to, to think about. Unless, of course, we don't like the government there, and then we might say, oh, no, that's probably true. 
right? We could say that of our own nation, right? To say that there is some demonic overlord ruling America, uh, we would probably believe that or not, depending on who's in, who's president or not, right? Uh, whether they're of our political ilk or someone else's. But we have to understand a few things here, a couple of things. And the first is that in the days of Paul, there's not this artificial separation between that which is spiritual and that which is natural, right? They, they are intertwined. In our day, there is a uh, understanding of a greater separation because we tend to the natural, not to the spiritual. And we have to confess here that we really don't know how much influence the evil spiritual forces uh, have over the earth. But we do know that they do rule, they do interact to some extent. And so to, uh, to kind of press into that a little further here, the first thing I want us to understand is that God sets up governments. So let's just, at, at a base level, let's get this understood and locked in in our mind. So who is it that sets up governments? It's not demonic forces. It is God. And the scripture tells us, Paul tells us is it clearly in the book of Romans, right? Romans 13, 1. If we ever have a question of government, Romans 13 should be a chapter we go to first, right? Romans 13, 1, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So that's period on that. If there's a governing authority, it exists because God allows it to exist, because it has been instituted by God. Uh, this, by the way, is what Jesus himself states to Pilate in, during his trial before Pilate. Look at John 19. John 19, verses 10 and 11. So Jesus stands before Pilate, and there's this back and forth. John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Is that an interesting? Pilate says, don't you know who I am? And Jesus says, don't you know you are only where you are because God has so ordained it. So, right, government exists because God exists. And God has instituted it. But we can also add to this that Satan has power to rule in some limited capacity. We also know that Satan has some limited capacity to rule and reign on the earth. We know he interacts with mankind. The book of Job makes that very clear, right? He's roaming about. Peter tells us that too, right? He's roaming about seeking whom he may devour. But we also get a taste of this during the temptation of Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Verses 5 through 8, one of the temptations of Jesus relates exactly to what we're talking about. This issue of government, this issue of authority and dominion. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil there says, 
The kingdoms are mine. Now notice what it also says is that they've been delivered to him. They've been given to him. It's not his because he is almighty, all-powerful. But for time he rules over the kingdoms. It is a derived authority. And ultimately it is only God who should be worshipped, right? Satan has no right being worshipped. Because he is not God. It is God alone to whom service is due as right and right. The third thing that we want to consider as we consider this, this issue of government, of authority, of rule, what are we talking about here, is that ultimately our struggle against, uh, against these rules, against these rulers and the, the powers, is not mainly or predominantly about flesh and blood, but it's about spiritual forces. Paul tells us as much. Look in the book of Ephesians, right? We're in Ephesians. Later on, Paul's going to clarify this for us in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? And we, we hear some of the overlap between our passage today and Ephesians 6. What Paul hints at here is made more explicit there in chapter 6. Our battle, our war, is against spiritual forces. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against kings and kingdoms of this world. It's not to say that the evil one doesn't use flesh and blood. Uh, chapter 2 which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, chapter 2, makes clear to us that everyone who is dead in their sins and trespasses walks after, so patterns their life after, follows after their leader, which is the prince of the power of the air. The evil one. There are those of flesh and blood who do the bidding of Satan. One clear example of that in the scriptures, right, is Judas Iscariot. Judas, the betrayer. What does the scripture tells us, tell us about him? That on the night when Jesus was betrayed, Satan entered him. And Jesus says, go and do, do what you're to do quickly. So to go back to our question then. Are the powers and authorities and dominions that Jesus is far superior in rank to those that he rules over, are these spiritual forces or earthly kingdoms? And the answer is yes. Right? It's both. Uh, both are true. Both could have been in the mind of Paul when he was writing this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't just limit this to the earthly and we shouldn't just limit this to the spiritual because as we think I see, as I've tried to build the case there, is that the spiritual and the earthly are intertwined. So both are in view. Now we have to ask, how does Jesus rule over these forces now and in the future? Paul writes that Jesus is far above, right? He's far superior. He's over every power and authority. And in case there was some kind of uh, level or category that Paul missed, what does he say? And above every name that is named. If you can name it, Jesus is over it, right? Jesus is far above it. Jesus is superior to it. But here, even, we have to deal with, because Paul says, not only in this age, so that means that Jesus, that is true of Jesus today. And it is going to be true of Jesus in the age to come. But we have to deal with this real-world issue of the reign of Jesus today, because does the world feel like it is being ruled by the holy, righteous, good, omnipotent, Christ Jesus today? Does it feel that way today? And if we are honest, we would probably say no. It doesn't feel like Jesus is reigning and ruling. 
It certainly seems like Satan has more rule over this world than Christ does. We need only look to the news and see the devastation. And when I say that word, I'm not talking about devastation by nature. Right? As we see what happened in, in Maui, right? This devastation, this, this destruction. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about devastation by human nature upon the world. The evils that humans propagate in this world. For instance, why is there a war between Ukraine and Russia today? Is Jesus not ruling over these two nations? And if he were good and righteous and omnipotent, could he not stop it? Or why do politicians in our own country seek their own sinful ends? Why do petty rulers of the kingdoms of this earth set themselves up as gods? Understand that that does happen. North Korea, the people there worship their leader as God. They're taught to, they're told to, they're forced to. So maybe Paul here meant to write that Jesus is far above Every rule, all, all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not in this age, but in the one to come. Right? Maybe he added some extra uh, language there that muddled it for us. Yet surely, as God has ever reigned and ruled over all creation, the sovereign Lord is not off his throne. He has never abdicated his rule. And instructive to this, I mentioned earlier the book of Job. And this should be instructive for us, right? The book of Job begins, we find ourselves, uh, after we get a little bit of insight into who Job is, we, get our, we find ourselves in the court of God. And here comes the adversary after his roaming to and fro over the earth, working his evil. And as God raises his righteous servant Job as an unparalleled example of righteousness, Satan begins his work of trying to destroy this paragon of virtue. Right? The evil one suggests, well, if you wouldn't have poured out so many blessings on him, if you didn't have a hedge of protection, by the way, that's where we get that phrase, uh, if you didn't have a hedge of protection around him, Surely Job would make void his confession of faith, to which God responds in Job 1.12. Job 1.12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what's so significant about this? Why do I say this? Why, what does this have to do with Jesus reigning today? that Satan could do nothing without permission. And even in this first instance, God gives him only so much authority, right? You can do, deal with whatever he has, but you cannot touch him. And when the court re re reconvenes and Satan comes back, right, God gives him permission to touch his body, to make him suffer bodily pain. All this to say that Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not the Almighty. God is the Almighty. Let's never forget that. And I know that this raises some difficult questions. Right? This is the, the philosophical or the theological question of the problem of evil. Why does evil exist? If God is all good and God is all powerful, why does evil exist? And in this we must confess two things. First, God is holy and righteous and good and he is never culpable for the sin of his creatures, though he allows and ordains that they should happen. This comes from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 4. I'm going to read that for us. 1689, chapter 5, paragraph 4 says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions both of angels and men and that not by bare permission which also he most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation 
to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. All right, so let us understand. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does he ordain all things? Yes. Does that include the fall? Does that include Satan's rebellion? Does that include our rebellion? Yes. But he is never the author or approver of sin. Remember earlier in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Remember that God ordained that. The unfolding of history, our present time, and all the future has been decreed by the Lord God from before the foundations of the world in accord with all of his character. There is nothing out of place. God is not the author or approver of sin. He is sovereign even over this. And if you still struggle with that, go and consider Romans chapter 9. Why does evil exist? Why do objects of wrath exist? Consider Romans 9. Which leads us to, the, to our second confession about these things. This stretches the limits of our abilities and wisdom. We have to confess at some point that we do not understand how all these things work together, but they do. We must confess that we do not understand all the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. We must confess that he is far superior to us that Jesus Christ is superior and preeminent in all. So does Jesus reign today? Does Jesus rule over this present world, even in spite of everything we may feel to the contrary? Right? And I use that language very intentionally. We feel it. It's not reality. We may feel that way, but it's not reality because Jesus, yes, absolutely, he does rule over all of this present age, despite what we may feel to the contrary. We can say, along with the rest of the scriptures, that there is coming a day when the rule and reign of Jesus will be complete. In the age to come, there will be no question by any creature about the rule of God the Son. Now, the third thing we must ask about verse 21 here is, what does this mean if you do not acknowledge Jesus as your Lord? Right? If you say that he is far superior, but you don't want to acknowledge him as far superior, what does that mean for you? Understand that there's coming a day when every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will acknowledge the superiority of Jesus over all other earthly or spiritual forces, powers, authorities, and kingdoms, including your own. And that day, Christ Jesus will repay. The Lord will judge all. Revelation 21.8 tells us, Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And as an aside there, notice that um, one of the categories of persons in view here, right? We, we would say those who fail to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, one of those categories is sorcerers. In relation to what I said earlier about the increasing commonality of magic and spells and magic totems and all the rest, magic crystals, all this stuff, understand that you are playing with sin and that sin is judged. The scripture is clear. We do not believe, if you are in Christ, we do not believe in magic. We believe in God. 
We don't need magic to control our situation. We go to a good God and pray for him to intercede. But all this to say, this, this, this second death, this lake of fire, it's more than just a scary story. We tell, we tell children to get them to obey us. This is the truth of what will happen to you if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. If you do not submit to his rule now, you will submit to it later. For all eternity, you will suffer his wrath. Listen closely to the psalmist out of Psalm 2. Out of Psalm chapter 2 and verses 10 through 12. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Listen to what the psalmist says, what he calls us to consider, what he calls the kingdoms of this earth to consider. Psalm 2, verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the Son. Submit to his rule, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Which leads us to the last question for us to consider. If that's what happens to those who don't believe. What about for us who do believe? If Christ is Lord and if he's far superior to all the rule and authority, whether in heaven or, or on earth, what does it mean for us? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, take from these words of scripture courage. Be encouraged. Christ Jesus is ruling and reigning now in heaven. And everything that happens in your life happens under the rule of God. He knows what is happening. He has planned and provision for it. God is making you into the likeness of his son, right? Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That's not just a verse we slap on a coffee mug so we can look at it and feel better about ourselves that's the reality brothers and sisters that's the truth and indeed let's consider this more fully in the next verses verses 22 and 23 the principal prince of his people let's consider the principal prince of his people verse 22 says and he put all things under his feet and let's just reiterate here when we talk about the rule of christ it's not just that he's superior in rank to these powers and authorities, but they are actually subject to him. Right? Paul's likely referencing here Psalm 8, 6. Psalm 8, 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All things are subject to Christ. And when we think of this, uh, this, this brought to my mind what Jesus says about uh, first in the Great Commission. Right, we know the Great Commission, go ye therefore. But before that, he says in Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's not lying here, right? All authority has been given to him. All things are under his feet. Again, we feel this tension one day we'll, we'll know the full reality of it. We feel the tension the way that the world is today and the way that the world will ultimately be. But what does it mean for those of us in Christ? If you believe in Jesus, what does this mean? Look, look at what this verse says here back in Ephesians 1. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We might miss the significance of what is written here. God gave Jesus Christ to the church. And what makes up that gift of Christ Jesus to the church includes his being ruler over all things. Verse 21 
is a gift to you, brothers and sisters. Marvel at the graciousness of God that he would give us so great a gift. Wonder at this, that Christ Jesus is given to his people, the church, the called out ones, and it is for your benefit. It is for your benefit that Christ Jesus rule and reigns over all. Now you may ask, well, how does this actually benefit me? Well, some ways. First, everything happens in accord with his good designs. We touched upon this before, but it bears repeating. Jesus rules over all. Everything that happens, believer, everything that happens in your life, brother and sister in Christ, everything. I emphasize everything because sometimes we don't believe everything. We believe some things happens for our good. But if you are in Christ, everything, everything happens for your good. Everything. I'll say it a bunch more times because I know we don't believe it. How do I know we don't believe it? Because I struggle to believe it. When we wake up and we're in pain, pain racks our bodies, we ask the question, is this for my good? And if you're in Christ, yes. And I don't say that as a trite thing. I, I really don't say that as a trite thing. If your child dies, is that for your good? If you're in Christ, we can say yes. And that's a hard yes to say. And it may take us many years to say it. But that's the reality. <clears throat> Christ is ruling. God gave Christ the ruler, the one far superior above all, the one who is all things subject to his feet. God gave Christ to his church as ruler over all. So everything happens in accord with his good designs. The second thing we can understand of this is that he is righteous and just, right? We can understand this in the future age, but also in the present. Paul writes Romans in Romans 12, 19, Romans 12, 19, beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves. We'll just pause here for a moment and say, uh, did Paul understand something of suffering? Did Paul understand something of suffering that was inflicted on him by others? What does Paul commend? Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can trust today that every injustice done against you by this evil world around us will be repaid by Christ Jesus. No one is going free. God will deal with all evil. By the way, this holds true outside the church and also holds true inside the church. <clears throat> The third thing we need to understand, he is good, right? And let us never forget the goodness of God. Jesus Christ is good, fundamentally so, in every way. So when we deal with this issue of Christ's reign and rule, he's good. Everything he does is in accord with his goodness. That's not true of earthly rulers, is it? The other thing is he is faithful to keep his promises. Jesus will keep all his promises. This is definitely not true of our world, right? How many politicians make promises and then as soon as they're in office, they forget all about them. Until, of course, it's time for them to be reelected again and all of a sudden they bring out the same old dusty promises. And yet, what does that say of us that we believe that they're actually going to keep their promise this time, right? But Jesus will keep his promises. He has all, all authority to do so. Did Jesus promise he will return? He will. He will do so. Did Jesus promise that he would come and take his people to be by his side forevermore? He will do so. Did Jesus say that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age? He will do so. By the way, that's the latter part of the Great Commission, right? 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't neglect the great promises of God, which shall be fulfilled. Another way that we can understand this idea of Christ being given as head of the church is to say that he is ruler over the church. I believe the context here is broader than that. So what I'm saying is that's one way that we could interpret this verse is to say that God gave Christ as head to the, over the church. I think it's more than that. I think it's what we just discussed. But it is true too. It is right and good to say that Jesus is the head of his people. And this is for our good. Right? Have you ever worked under a bad manager? Or maybe you had a really unwise and difficult teacher in school. It can be very difficult to sit under poor leadership. It can really make you wonder how a person got that position. Like, how, how did you get here, man? Like, you're so incompetent. Like, did you become incompetent when you became a manager? Like, was that part of the management course? It's like, let's see how incompetent you can be. Or, or have you always been this way? How did you get here? It can be difficult to sit under poor leadership. And further, we can say, right, that leadership, power, authority can be used for abusive ends. We know this to get that, that to be the case. Maybe we've been subject to it ourselves, or we've certainly heard enough stories, seemingly countless tales. And we know that doesn't just happen outside the church. That happens within the church. Those in authority using their authority for abusive ends. God have mercy. But as much as Jesus is ruler over all, he is most certainly and especially the head of the church. Christ Jesus is our head. Redeeming Grace Fellowship has at its head Christ Jesus. He is the great shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. I strive to lead as Jesus leads, but I am not perfect. He is perfect. I am not. He never fails. I fail. I'm a sinner. But he never sins. That's why he is our head. And we can always trust in the good headship of Christ Jesus. Let's look at verse 23, uh, which is his body, right? The church, which is his body. Paul probably has in view here not what we commonly think of a physical head and body. Uh, we see such a metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, right? When he talks about the eye, the ear, can the eye say to the nose? He doesn't use that example, but can the eye say to the nose? I want to be a nose. I'm going to start smelling things. No, that's foolishness, right? But the, the church's body, what, what we probably have more, the metaphor being here more, something more like, right, he is the, the head. Uh, we could think of this in the terms of a nation. He's the president and we're the people, right? He's the head and we're the body. He's the leader, and we're the ones that are following his leadership. It's probably what's in view. Now, this last phrase, the fullness of him who fills all in all, one commentator puts it, that is probably the most obscure phrase in all of the New Testament. So what do we do with this? There's lots of questions of translation and interpretation here. How do we understand the, the verbs, the nouns, the participles, all these things? But we might... Focus the question to this. Is Christ made full by the church or is the church made full by Christ? Right. When we say, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Is Christ being made full or is the church being made full? Calvin takes it that on this passage that it's the church, the body of Christ that makes his fullness. He writes of this passage. This is the highest honor of the church that until he is united to us, the son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. I'll let that sink in for a second. But adds Calvin that the last phrase who fills all in all, that that is there to indicate that there is no want in Christ. So in one sense, we say that Christ is, imperfect until the fullness of the church is brought in so the the groom is united to his bride 
But ultimately, Christ Jesus doesn't need us as his body. He fills all in all. Uh, he is complete in and of himself. Where the church never conceived, never called, never predestinated before the foundation of the world, God would be full and complete, lacking nothing, needing nothing. Yet in the providence of God, in accord with his manifold grace towards us, he is so ordained that Christ should be head, and we, his body, should be his. So one view of this, of this is that Jesus is made by, full by the church, even as he fills all in all. Uh, other commentators take this phrase to mean that the church is filled by Christ. Do we know that to be true? Yeah, absolutely, right? What needy creatures we are. The church is filled with the spirit of Christ. We're made complete by the work of Christ. We're saved by the cross of Christ. Uh, we are only his in union with Christ, right? All, all these things are true. We need Christ. We can say amen to that, right? We need Christ. So what do we do with this passage? Let us affirm, confess, sing, pray, shout that Christ is king. He is high king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is ruler of over all peoples, places, and things especially his church. Amen. And in this, believers, we have hope. We know that the rule and reign of Christ will bring all things to their proper end. If you remember back, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 earlier on, in verses 9 and 10, right, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. All things are going to be summed up in Christ Jesus. All things are being brought to their proper end in Christ Jesus. He will bring this world and its creatures to their proper ends. The world will be renewed by the power of his might. And all creatures will be so judged by the just and righteous king. So brothers and sisters in Christ, trust in Christ's good rule. Whatever your situation, wherever you may be, this you ought always hold to. Christ reigns. God has not left his throne. Doesn't mean that we'll be free from suffering. No, the pathway of the Christian life is one of suffering. Paul says it's through many, many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. But it doesn't mean that all this will resolve in the way that we think it should. But it will all resolve according to the good plans and pleasures of our God and King. Injustice on earth is painful and difficult, but we trust that the Lord will have his vengeance. Let us never forget the heavenly scene we find in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. Pause there and ask, did they suffer injustice? Yes. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete were to be killed as they themselves have been. Wait a little bit longer. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Amen. So submit yourself to his good rule. That's true outside of the church. That's true within it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's easier to say, we know. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to live out. But we must remind ourselves of this. Some of you, though, need to consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what he is saying there is that it's possible to use the right language. Right? We don't just call him Lord. We say, Lord, Lord. That's how, no, that's how you know we're serious. We said it twice. You're the lordier 
of all the, all the lords. If you really say that Jesus is your Savior, if you call Christ Lord, then your life should reflect that. Your life must look different. With Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it has to. There should be a marked difference in your dispositions. It, it doesn't mean that you'll never sin, but it does mean that the trajectory of your life should be Christward, that you're not satisfied in your sin, that you're not willing to just sit in it, but you want to do something about it, that it concerns you, that you should be want to be done with it, not coddle it. Because here's the fundamental reality of what our passage tells us today. Christ Jesus rules over all. He is superior to all power and authority and dominion and kingdom and nation and lordship and you. He is not merely superior to all, but all are subject to him. And you may not acknowledge Christ now, but one day you will stand before him in heaven and you will call him Lord. But then it will be too late. And you will suffer for your refusal to call Christ Lord and mean it today. What is reserved for you is the second death, the lake of fire, hell. And yet if you draw breath, there is time for you to repent. There is time for you yet to turn from your sins, to turn from the deadness of them, to turn from them and to turn to God. And so I, I would call you today, I encourage you today, confess your sins, confess Christ as Lord, submit to him in all your ways, ask him for the forgiveness of your treachery, your, your rebellion, your trespasses, ask him for forgiveness for your disobedience, ask him for forgiveness, forgiven him lip service for so long saying, Lord, Lord, but failing to do the will of the Father in heaven. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. And if you are a sinner, by the way, you are a sinner, he offers to all who believe the forgiveness of their sins, the hope of eternal life, the gracious gift of his rule for all eternity. The gift of grace is made possible through his righteous life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection and ascension into heaven. So do you, not the person next to you, not the person behind you, not the person in front of you, do you recognize Jesus' superiority? And will you submit yourself to his headship? This is good. It's a good. It's a trust in Jesus, friend. And then let us all worship him, our head, our king, our Lord, our master, our fullness, Savior, let's pray. O oh, great God in heaven, exalted in glory, majesty enthroned, wonder and beauty, radiant light, whose glory shines, who one day when this Heaven and earth are renewed. There will no longer be need for sun because the glory of you, O Father, the glory of you, O Son, will fill the earth. It is to you, Lord God, that we pray and we ask this day. Father, we confess our sins before you. We ask you for the forgiveness for our rebellion, for our trying to place ourselves over Jesus as Lord. Father, forgive us for the sin that so, is so deep ingrained in our nature. That rebellion and disobedience are far easier than all else. Father, we pray that, that we would glorify your name, that we would glorify Christ Jesus, that we, would, that we would speak of the wonders of our king, the goodness of his kingdom. 
that we would be faithful ambassadors to go and to proclaim and to advocate for our kingdom, the kingdom of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we thank you. Uh, for those of us who are in Christ, we thank you that, that you have given us of your goodness, that you have worked these things, that you have purposed these things from all eternity past, that from before the foundations of the world, you chose us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon those who are self-deceived, who are blind to the reality that Jesus is Lord. Father, we pray that you give them eyes to see it. Lord, that they would join in the chorus singing about our great King. And Father, help us to be faithful, to proclaim the truth, and to live it out in all our ways. Lord, help us, we pray. Be glorified in us, we pray. In the name of the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus the Christ. Amen.